Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. Welcome to Local Zero. In our last episode, we looked at how we can make the heating systems in our homes and businesses zero carbon. And we talked about the technologies and mindset changes that are needed to do that. Today, we'll flow on from there, looking at the jobs, skills and supply chains that will be needed to make that change. This is an absolutely crucial part of the net zero puzzle. If we don't have the tools and systems to deliver zero carbon buildings, we simply won't reach the UK's net zero goals. It's as simple as that. So it's vital to understand why the industry we have today isn't fit for the future, where the gaps are that need filling, and how we can develop the skills and supply chains for zero carbon homes. Later, we'll hear from Nathan Gambling on training the next generation of heating engineers. One of the best ways we learn is from each other, peer learning. Just sitting people in classrooms and listening to instruction, listening to a lecture doesn't work. It's evidence that never has worked. And yet that's unfortunately what my industry always seems to do. We've also got Dr. Joe Patterson, a senior research fellow at the Welsh School of Architecture at Cardiff University, focused on developing sustainable homes. In the budget now, there's a flexi job apprenticeship, which enables people to work across different roles and I think that is kind of the thing that we need to look at is training electricians to know what plumbers do, plumbers to know what IT do and a really cross-sharing of knowledge. And we'll also hear from Nigel Banks, a special projects director at Ilka Homes where they design, build and install ultra-modern zero-carbon homes. A high-performing home can be much more comfortable, a much more enjoyable place to live in and, and spend time in and much better for your health as well. And we've seen the, the health impacts and the impacts on people's lives have been, have been enormous. So you're listening to Local Zero. If you want to contact us or ask any questions on social media, please contact us at energyrev underscore UK and use the hashtag Local Zero. And as always, we've got Fraser with us. So welcome, Fraser. What's happening, everybody? How are we all doing? Yeah, they're doing well. Doing well. How about yourself? Oh, hanging in. Yeah, hanging in. The days are getting longer. It's always nice. We're, we're certainly enjoying the warmer weather. Um, and I'm personally enjoying the kids being back at school or nursery. Uh, that's been a massive, massive change. I know, Becky, we've, we've already been comparing notes, but uh, 
They're, they are all back in business, which is good news. So hence why there's a bit more prep for this episode than in previous weeks. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure that that was actually possible after our last episode, but you've excelled yourself, Matt. I have. Well, more more like Microsoft worded myself, but we've, we've got a <laughs> terrible joke. I honestly thought, Becky, in the last episode, I wondered if we maybe weren't doing enough preparation. I thought but that too. <laughs> <laughs> Now I know I'm not. Yeah. Making it sound like I haven't got any pals, right? <laughs> the better things to do. It's it's brilliant. I mean... It is incredible. Well, anyway, we've I've done my homework. I won't get my knuckles wrapped this week. <laughs> and you've done everyone else's homework. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like Fraser and I need to be interviewing you as well, Matt. Yeah, yeah I did kind of pause it, but I was like, actually, you know, we're getting the experts on for them to answer the questions. <laughs> I love also that it's all highlighted in yellow because I usually use highlighting as like, this is a key point, bring this up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think this is because I've become institutionalized because originally, like a few episodes back, it was just highlighted yellow, but now I've kind of stuck with it. Like I can't seem to kind of imbibe any of this information <laughs> unless it's in a kind of horrific yellow like <laughs> yeah there's a well my notes are mostly about the budget so uh, before you know before we get stuck in what 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 are your hot takes on dishy rishi's budget dishy rishi oh dear <laughs> did you see the 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 bbc segment on him, the little two minute clip that they put together it was like a proper like swooning ad campaign about rishi and his big strong arms before he put the budget out it was so, so hilarious. I thought the budget, so from the headlines, I thought the budget was interesting. Um, but digging into the figures, I feel a little more sceptical and a little more cynical about it now. It sounded really, really nice and more positive than I guess anyone expected on the back of the pandemic and everything like that. But I think in terms of the things that we're interested in in this podcast specifically, I think it left a little bit to be desired. What did you think, Becky? Yeah, I, I agree. I felt like at the high level and when I first saw some of the, uh, you know, the bigger statements and so on and, and various people's response to it, I was quite heartened. But as you say, once you start to dig into the detail, it felt like there are just some gaps in there. And while there might be, you know, funding going and money going to, into certain areas, it wasn't clear that we were actually going to be able to deliver everything that needed to be delivered, that the building blocks yeah. weren't all in there. I mean, for me, some of the, the key headlines, the Green Homes grant, which we've talked a lot about in previous episodes, that wasn't cold. There were big questions about whether it would go or it wouldn't. It stayed there, but it's... It wasn't mentioned, right? Well, yeah. So almost yeah. the no news was the good news, um, <laughs> but that's tempered with the bad news that it was none of the money from 2021, i.e. any of the money from this financial year that wasn't spent, which was a lot, like billion pounds plus isn't going to be rolled over. So we've got a watered down scheme. What we also have, uh, I guess, some pieces of good news, uh, apprenticeships. Uh, Sunak was clear about you know, doubling things like the employer apprentice bonus. If you tie this into other incentives that were on offer, the, the conditions look quite good for small companies to bring people on and train them up. Other things where I think, you know, what you, you two were saying, people weren't so happy about Questions around whether the, the Green Investment Bank 2.0, which is this new national infrastructure bank, 
whether the money from that will actually go into green projects and, and support green supply chains is a big question. Same with the um, with the super deduction mechanism, uh, which I won't go into here, but Google it. Uh, it's it sounds it sounds as exciting as it is, um, but it's basically being able to write off some of your taxes. Uh, just the other point I think to mention, Aberdeen got a mention. Aberdeen was identified for twenty seven million pounds of um, investment into the Aberdeen Energy Transition Zone. Now, whilst not specifically about buildings, which this is, episode is about, it's all about supporting the transition away from oil and gas. And, and a big part of that will be jobs and skills. It will be. It will be. I think I'm, I'm a little tentative and a little nervous about uh, some of these, the jobs and skills. And perhaps the budget isn't the place where this needs to be considered, but I do think it needs to be considered somewhere. And that is the, the broader context of, of these jobs and skills. So looking at the jobs that, that people will be transitioning out of and what they'll be transitioning into and whether we're looking at the same sort of you know unionization, whether there's the same career progression opportunities, whether there's the same sorts of skills, training, qualification. So we need to be thinking about that in the long term. We need to be looking at really what's the career pathway for a lot of people as this is transitioning rather than just a, a short-term fix, I guess. I think that's a really important point. And you know, from our last episode with uh, Richard Lowe's, he made the point that roughly, you know, heat pumps are going to demand twice the labor that a that a boiler will. So we're looking at, you know, twice the jobs, you know, in a very crude sense. Uh, and there's all sorts of numbers, which we can get into in a moment around the expected uplift in jobs. I mean, 200,000 for, for buildings is, you know, what the CCC were reporting on. And so we know it's a growth area and it, and it has to be for net zero. But as you say, what about career path? What does that look like? And, you know, wh where's the first rung of the ladder and where would you be in 10, 15, 20 years after that? We're not even anywhere near the beginning of that discussion. No, but it has to be, we, we have to get to there because ultimately what you're asking people to do is to buy into this new way of life. And we've seen in other countries around the world that if workers are not engaged and bought into what this transition could look like, it's going to fail before it even starts. So while we might be talking about something that's happening in you know, 5, 10, 15 years time, Unless we get on the right path now, we might not see people engaging with this transition in the way that they're going to need to engage to actually make it happen. So a question for you two, another quiz question. Um, how many jobs do you think are given over to the energy efficiency sector? Now, I, I don't quite know what this captures because it's from the government's Build Back Better report, which went alongside the um, the, the budget. But Energy efficiency, assuming it involves, you know, making your homes uh, cleaner uh, and greener. Have a guess. How many jobs in the UK? Right now or how many jobs do we need? T today. Today. Half a million? Way lower. Yeah, I, I instinctively went lower. Uh, maybe 150,000? Well, it's 114,000, according to, to the government's numbers. And I should say, set this in the context that the ONS, uh, Office for National Statistics, uh, says there's about 225,000 people in low carbon uh, and renewable energy jobs. So it's about half the jobs uh, in, in the sort of, you know, low carbon sector. But if you think about 114,000 jobs on the one hand and uh, the CCC pointing to, to, to other uh, numbers saying that actually we've got to see a 200,000 increase, you're looking at these numbers tripling, tripling within 10 years. And so what we really need to do is look at actually, what do those jobs need to do? So what are our 
buildings of the future. You know, we're talking about energy efficiency. A huge amount of that's going to be thinking about buildings. What do they What do they look like? And uh, what are the skills and the supply chains to deliver them going to require? And hopefully that's something that we can uncover on today's show. So coming up, we're going to speak to two guests to learn a little bit more about how we can decarbonize our homes and buildings and the types of skills and jobs and supply chains that we require to do that. Hi, I'm Nigel Banks, Director of a Developer and Manufacturer of High Performing Modular Homes and previously worked extensively in the sort of design, build and operation of sustainable buildings. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Joe Patterson. I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Welsh School of Architecture at Cardiff University. It's very busy at the moment. I mean, obviously, energy is a huge subtopic that's um, prominent in the news. It's in the budget. Um, it's something that's really being focused on generally at the moment. So there is an awful lot of work going on. We're also spending an awful lot of time in our houses. So again, houses is housing and homes is also a huge consideration and, and it's changing. So that's really important and creating a lot of work for people like ourselves at the moment. We're going to talk in this episode a lot more about skills and jobs and supply chains, but that really all leads to changing our building stock. So what does our building stock look like in 10, 20 years and how different will, will that be compared to today? There's, there's a few things that I think I hope we'll be getting right that we probably don't do as well as we should do today. And, and that's around the sort of fundamentals of any building should be safe, healthy and affordable. And I think we've got some real challenges in, in, in doing the basics right, but clearly we need to, to move to, to much more sustainable housing. And that's probably the, the new fourth fundamental of every new home and, and building we create. So zero greenhouse gas emissions, hopefully lower or even zero in body carbon, um, no waste and, and also long lasting buildings. I think some of the buildings that were built not that long ago are being knocked down. So they need to be flexible and attractive. And I think we have a lot of the technologies to do what we need to do. And we're doing a little bit at small scale. What we need to do is really massively scale that up. And Joe, you do a lot of work really looking at what that would actually look like and what that means kind of on the ground for people that might be living in these homes and people that might be working to deliver them. So for me, for my household, what does that mean? How is that actually going to feel different, that home of the future? Well, I think a lot of the work, that, like like Nigel has alluded to, I think we do need to try and keep our homes as homes and be able to live in them as people feel comfortable, be able to feel comfortable maintaining those homes and being able to control any new technologies that come into their, the homes and are installed in their homes. They need to have confidence that they can use those homes in the way that they've been designed. And that runs right through from anything that to do with renewable energy, any storage, any heating systems. The occupants and residents need to be the, the first consideration in designing the combinations of low carbon solutions into their homes. And is that not happening right now? I don't. I think there is a bit of a, a lack of communication and collaboration to a certain extent. I, I think it is happening, obviously, in certain projects, but I think that, that quite often, particularly funding streams can target certain solutions but those those solutions can be individual solutions rather than a, the whole whole systems approach and i think by bringing that whole systems approach together then the controls and the systems can work a lot more effectively for and better for the residents that are living in those homes. So tell us a little bit more, Joe, about what you mean by this whole systems approach. Um, you know, what doesn't work together today? How will it work together differently in the future? And, and does that have any implications on what that means for the industry? Sure. 
so at Cardiff University, we've done a lot of research on retrofits, whole house retrofits. Obviously, to achieve net zero carbon emissions, we need to combine um, solutions. So we need to be looking at demand reduction, improving fabric, using appropriate and affordable uh, heating systems. But that needs to be combined with renewable energy supply and also battery storage as well. From our research, we found that the only way that we can get anywhere near low carbon is to combine those technologies together. And obviously, people across the skill sector need to collaborate to enable those to be installed correctly and appropriately to work best for the residents. So Joe, I'm, I'm going to just reflect back on a chat that you had recently with Kevin McLeod, I think, uh, that, that was hosted at Cardiff, which was really, really interesting uh, and a great listen. Um, I've I've sadly been re-watching all the grand designs recently, uh, I won't, for reasons I won't bore you with. Um, and one of the, I thought he, he neatly captured what good architecture was, which was it, it makes living easier, or at least you have to think less about living in this space. So I, I'm going to ask you first, Joe, we'll come, come on to you in a moment, Nigel. Can zero carbon homes be better places to live? I mean, and should they? Uh, I guess it's not just about emissions. Can we make these better places to live? Absolutely. I mean, it is like you've just said, it's not all about emissions at all. And I think from all of the research and retrofit and new built housing that we've worked on by combining, by thinking about carbon emissions and reduced energy use together really helps the resident to be able to save money. If the systems are installed properly, if they're commissioned properly in the whole design planning, design planning and construction process are all carried out as they should be, then the the built environment conditions, temperatures, humidity conditions, and all of those living conditions will be improved. Excellent. And, and Nigel, your view, can these be better places to live in? Absolutely, they can. And and I've personally experienced that in, in the homes that I've retrofitted and built and, and lived in, as well as seeing that on, on large-scale social housing projects. A high-performing home can be much more comfortable, a much more enjoyable place to live in and, and spend time in, and much better for your health as well. And we've seen on, on some of these social housing refurbishment projects I've been involved in, the fuel poverty schemes, the health impacts and the impact on people's lives have been have been enormous. And hopefully that will help address some of the skills challenges. Is we need some inspirational projects and and some inspirational showcases and case studies to to, to a inspire people to do this work, but also inspire people to uh, want to get involved in this industry. And I think some of those technologies coming together and the outcomes that you're delivering really can inspire a new generation of people to come into this industry. So Nigel, tell us a little bit more about kind of your history through this industry, because you mentioned um, at the beginning that you're now working um, around modular homes. So first of all, you're going to have to unpack that for us and tell us what do you mean by modular homes? So so we have a factory of 500 people uh, in North Yorkshire and, and we're, we're growing further still that employ more people this year. And that's a very different setup to a traditional construction site. So we're, we, we directly employ almost all the staff, whereas the construction industry is mostly 40% self-employed. And we, we manufacture basically whole floors of a house. So a whole ground floor, kitchen in, installed, the external finishes, the bricks on the outside, in the factory, transport them to site, crane them on four or six houses a day, uh, and complete, complete the site from foundations to, to people moving in in a couple of weeks. So... We've, we've very much taken the manufacturing approach and bringing that into construction because the construction industry really hasn't changed for a long time and, it, and, it, and it's not very good at, at R&D, at continuous improvement and doing the things that most other industries have moved on. If you think 
of a car in the 1970s to a car today, it's, it's transformed. A house from the 1970s to a house today hasn't changed very much. That's that's absolutely fascinating. And that's presumably thinking very much about new build. I know, Joe, you've worked a lot more on the retrofit side of things. And so by default, you're kind of working in existing homes and having to bring together different parts of the construction industry. How are you finding that working in terms of bringing those different people together that might not usually be working together? People love to work together. I think generally we've found that people really enjoy working together. They really enjoy learning from each other in their different trades as well. But it is something that I think one of the key skills to enable that to happen is the project management role or who who has communication skills that is able to to enable the communication to happen at the different stages of the retrofit process i mean it's really important that projects are planned very carefully that they're designed very carefully and that and then they're constructed and unoperated and there is a certain management and communication roles that that need to happen to enable that to happen across the whole process but from our experience, people really want to change and it has, is having those management roles to make it change. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen that before. In my previous role, I worked at a main contractor who was delivering new build and refurbishment contracts, largely in social housing, but also in private housing. And there was a dedicated role of a, of a liaison officer who was, who was the client customer liaison officer, who was a very much a communicator, have a cup of tea, walk you through the process, resolve any issues and be the interface with the construction team. And then we've got this new role on retrofit, this retrofit coordinator role, which is going to come in and, and help design and bring the bits of the jigsaw together. Because as Joe has said, a lot of the industry is, is fragmented into their skill set and they know their bit of the, of the jigsaw and you need someone to help bring that together. Because if, if it's done well, they'll work together and give you a really great building. If it's done badly, you can have some negative uh, adverse consequences leading to, to damp or mold or, or poor ventilation if that's not been considered. And this is a huge change for the uh, for the sector as a whole, really. I mean, if you imagine up until sort of what, well, even now, really, the majority of houses have gas heated, gas central heating systems. So a plumber might turn it turns up and knows exactly what they're going to be faced with, what equipment they need to take with them. Whereas this is going to change as our heating systems change and become more diverse. So that knowledge and understanding across the sector really needs to broaden to enable people to feel confident in their own homes. Well, I love that you mentioned that, Joe. I love that you mentioned about sort of plumbers and, and coming along and, and fitting your gas central heating because um, my boiler went over the Christmas period and I had to get it refitted. And the only option that I was provided with was a, you know, like for like replacement. And you're right, that's not going to get us anywhere near where we need to be for net zero. So how how far away from this kind of vision of the future are we now? And what are we going to need to actually make that happen? What are we going to need to make sure that every plumber that comes around to your home to fit you a new boiler when yours blows on a Sunday evening, the day before Christmas or whatever, how are we going to make sure that everybody is offering these solutions that are compatible, not just with net zero, but with this far more integrated home of the future? I think the apprentice, the, you know, developing apprentices and the sort of the young people coming through is going to be critical for that to happen. Just that general plumber, electrician sort of role is not seen as how it has been in the past because it it won't be the same as it is in the past. But we also need people to train those people. And I think that's kind of the biggest gap for me is who is going to train those apprentices. In the budget now, there's a flexi flexi job apprenticeship, which enables people to work across 
different roles. And I think that is kind of the thing that we need to look at is training you know, electricians to know what plumbers do, plumbers to know what IT do, and a really cross-sharing of knowledge to to understand what the next person is coming in to do or the person that's been in before them has done so that they can align their works together. With the chat coming around to workforce and the mammoth task of training up all the people that will be needed to install zero carbon heat systems in our homes and industry, it's a good spot in the show to drop into a chat that I recorded earlier in the week with Nathan Gambling. Nathan's got his own renewable energy, low carbon podcast called Beta Talk. He's extremely passionate about heat solutions and particularly about training the workforce around this area. He says he was born into it. His grandfather was one of Europe's leading oil combustion heat experts. So I wanted to get his thoughts on how we train up more engineers with the skills that are needed for zero carbon homes and heating. Heating is possible, you know, it's the most complex system in someone's home. As my cousin likes to say, you know, it's not rocket science. It's a lot more complex than that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the biggest challenges I see is actually we don't really understand in this industry how to train people effectively. If you were to actually ask my industry or the retrofit industry, do they actually use evidence-based practice? They don't. And that's a big, big problem. We're training people to be qualified rather than competent. And there's a big difference. So how do we how do we encourage people to use the evidence base in their training rather than the alternative just now, as it were? So, so that's one of sort of my jobs, really. So I go around and I talk with uh, the associations, the organisations involved in all this big discourse about how you can use evidence-based uh, practice. One one of the best ways we learn is from each other, peer learning. Just sitting people in classrooms and listening to instruction, listening to a lecture doesn't work. It's evidence that never has worked. And yet that's unfortunately what my industry always seems to do. I use some of the best um, engineers uh, there are in the UK on my my industry. I've never once asked them to see a certificate. What we tend to do, the best in the industry know who the best are. And they've been engaging with each other. We now live in a world of social media. They're in WhatsApp groups, they're in Facebook groups. They are standardising themselves. I mean, we've got this other strange notion that you get some experts together, that you spend months and months and months writing standards, you then develop a course for that, you sit someone down for three days, and they're supposed to learn in three days what experts took months to write. Learning doesn't happen like that, it really doesn't. I mean, learning, learning is like breathing. It's the role of the learner. We can't do it for them. We can just uh, provide them with uh, experiences and resources. We can't do it for them. It's... Uh, you know, education is something that's done to us, but learning is something we do for ourselves. And we need to sort of inspire, encourage engineers to realise that, or anyone involved in the whole retrofit thing, because it is a complex industry. It's a very complex industry. And I think we're only now starting to realise that. Uh, some of us in the industry did already know that, but but it's, uh, you know, boilers are very forgiving, but heat pumps aren't. You know, you need to get it right. You need to get the fabric right to, uh, you know, heat and air and moisture movement within a home is, in, is critically important. It is complex. Do you find then that generally the average engineer, your, your average on-site engineer, are they excited about this prospect? Do you think there's wide demand for retraining, for upskilling, for want of a better word? Is this something that you find a lot of excitement about or is there any pushback to that? That's a very interesting question. So you'll find that the average age of the plumber heating engineer is going to be around about my age. I was 50 uh, last week. So a lot of uh, the other thing you have to think about in our industry, we're mainly self-employed. Most people in construction and building services are self-employed. So if they've got a good thing going, you know, why would they want to transition to something that might upset the apple cart? 
Uh, I am seeing, though, there is there is enthusiasm out there. Uh, I think there's worry as well because they realise they've got to get a little bit more technical in some in, in some ways. So yeah, you kind of see two two aspects. You'll see you'll you'll get the sole trade or the SME won't probably want to be involved at all. You know, they've got a few more years till they retire, for instance. I mean, I'm going to be doing some work soon with MCS and Offtech who are going to try and engage with their 9,000 Offtech engineers to sort of encourage them, not perhaps just to think about themselves, but if they have a business that maybe their daughter or son is going to take over, you know, to, to think about it in terms of them so that we can encourage them to sort of start to, because this transition is coming. I mean, that's the most exciting thing that's ever happened in the industry that I've been ever. So that kind of works with what I do as beta teach. It's about encouraging people to think about this now, activating them as autonomous learners, to start learning about all this technology uh, and hydronic design, because that's a big problem. Uh, you know, the boiler industry was very forgiving. You can just literally hang a boiler on the wall and walk away or work, basically. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> So most engineers are very low-skilled. They don't know too much about hydronic design, but that's that's all doable. It's like, But like you say, and it's a very good question, you what can we do to inspire that sort of thinking and sort of that want to actually go out and, and transition? Yeah, this is it. It's it's how do you encourage that action that actually it probably it probably could have in the longer term a lot of benefit for the for the engineers as well. But it's it has to be their decision to make. It has to be like the, the breathing analogy I thought was brilliant. It has to be um, their decision and to suit their life as well and what they want to do and what they want to achieve. So moving away from the engineer then, do you think... And, and from yourself as well, do you think there are other people who can encourage this kind of retraining, who can sort of promote this kind of retraining, maybe in government or in policy? Are there any other actors that you think are going to be important to this? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the other thing is it's going to be, you're going to find people from other industries want to transition. So I've taught a lot of adults. People come from fire service, the army, the police, or whatever. So there's going to be other people that are going to be able to transition quite easily i mean also we've got to do more for inclusion i mean when i used to teach within colleges people you know i used to say to people why aren't we teaching people in in wheelchairs and they say well they can't be plumbers i say well most of plumbing is actually design you know and a lot of people can go out there bend pipe and solder pipe i've talked thousands of people out of bend pipe solder pipe but when you come to design a hydronic system you know that that anyone could do that you know if <laughs> within reason so, yeah, we need to encourage more people from different sectors, uh, more, more uh, sort of diverse and inclusion. Uh, it's all possible. And that's when you can start to see where the excitement is and capture that excitement, you know, and, and work out who really is eager to sort of learn. Because, like I say, one of the problems in my industry is we, we do put people on courses. It's very easy to go and sit on that course, get your ticket, go out there and make loads of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do you think... Do you think that's something that we should be thinking about building more into modern apprenticeships, into those kind of programs where we're training people straight out of school? Oh, apprenticeships are so complex. Apprenticeships are very complex. What most people don't realise, if you walked into a college, possibly one out of every 10 person on a plumbing course, a bricklaying course, is an apprentice. The rest have not got work. So we teach hundreds of thousands of people. They, they enrol onto these courses, but they, ne- they never get the work because, once again, we're a self-employed industry. Self-employed people only tend to take on their daughters, their nieces, their sons, etc. So to solve the apprenticeship problem, you need to actually now encourage people to actually give them a job. And that's the big problem because all the funding is going to colleges and awarding bodies. And, you know, I I came back, why do we need certificates? We live in a smartphone world. You know, why are we using this ancient system of certificates still? You know, hundreds of thousands of City and Guild certificates are handed out every year. And and they're useless because they've never been on the job. So that's one of the problems. How do you get them people back into industry and say, look, you know, you've done, you've done the theory. I mean, don't get me wrong, you, you're only taught to pass an exam. It's not great theory. 
come back into the industry, we'll train you a little bit better with some people. You need to be trained with the employers. So you need to support and fund the employers, really, and maybe train employers how to empathise with an apprentice and encourage them in how to sort of develop learning skills. We have to completely rethink this whole paradigm of training. It's not just courses, it really isn't. Great stuff. Cheers again to Nathan Gambling of the Beta Talk podcast for taking the time to talk about the challenges around upskilling and training the next generation of heat engineers. Back now to Becky and Matt and the rest of the conversation with Joe and Nigel. So you've you both outlined different uh, sort of supply chains before. Nigel, you were you were mentioning uh, new modular housing. Joe, a little bit more about retrofit, and we've we're just starting to move this discussion into you know where, where the training and skills are most needed. So for you, you know, what are the what are the big gaps? Where do we need to train people across these different supply chains? And then on the other side of that coin is maybe where is our skill base deepest, and and we're best placed today. So. If- for me, the, the construction industry has got the capabilities to do the work that's there, and we have the technologies. Typical problem, it's in a small, small set of people. We need to try and expand that out. And we don't need to do that overnight. If your gas boiler goes and it's an emergency response, you'll need another gas boiler because it will take some time to fit larger radiators and, and, and potentially find a cylinder and get that hit, fitted for, for an air source heat pump. But what we do need is, is to move the industry on. And for me, there's two sort of key key sectors that can help that happen. One is, is, is social housing, which, which does replace lots of boilers. We've got lots of engineers, lots of companies working in that space. They can start upskilling their workforce to do other technologies, and, and they will then be able to do both. And the other is in, is in, is in new build housing. Um, the government has set an ambition of 600,000 heat pumps a year by uh, 2028, and I think they think half of those will be fitted in new build housing at that point a year. So new world housing as, as a potential to, to, to upskill. And we, and we saw that in the past. So, so 10 years ago, the eco homes were fitting solar panels. And then when the feeding tariff came along in 2012, 13, a lot of those installers who had been involved in that upskilled, grew their businesses, took on apprentices and were able to, to expand into the other sectors. And that, that really helps us uh, unlock that. So I think it's about providing the environment for the people who've got those capabilities and, and skills to, to, to upskill and retrain and develop into other areas of the market and understand how to use those different skills. And I also think that we also need some sort of consistency as well, because a lot of people who work in the construction sector are from SMEs or are self-employed. And I think for them, you know, if you are a self-employed plumber or, a, you know, a gas fitter at the moment, where do you go? What do you train to do going forwards? Because there is so much uncertainty as to where 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 we where we're heading? I mean, I'm, I was in exactly the same position as Becky, and my gas my boiler packed up as well recently. And I spoke to the plumber that attended our house and asked him, "What you know? Had he installed any air source heat pumps?" And he said, "Not interested. You know, the gas is good. The the network's going to be hydrogen. So why should I bother? If you are an SME, you can't. You haven't got the time to invest in spending." weeks or months training to, to, to sort of train for something that might not be the thing that goes forward. So so what do we need? Do we need a lot more direction from government? Do we need intervention at that level to, to kind of direct the industry and make sure everyone's moving in the same pattern? Yeah. So fundamental to businesses getting growing into, into, into new markets and reskilling is around confidence. So if you're a if you're a small business, you're only reskilling a new trade or a new technology. If you think there's lots of work and you can get good rates doing that work, if you're a big company, you'll only take on labour 
direct labor if you can see a strong long-term low-risk market that's going to be there and that requires confidence in in government policy and, and that's been significantly eroded over the last 10 years and for want of a better phrase strong and stable uh, strong and stable policy that has a clear view of a five-year marketplace that's going to be underpinned and, and money not pulled away is, is absolutely critical to, to unlocking that investment of, of, of time as well as money and from businesses. So Nigel, was that one of the big challenges or big issues that we saw with the Green Homes Grant and why we just haven't seen the level of uptake as we might hope? So I think a lot of people were waiting to see if this policy does stick around and unfortunately it hasn't. So that that is a, is a real issue. And we saw this in the past. So uh, if people look back in sort of 2011-12 when I was heavily involved in the retrofit industry we were we were lagging over a million lofts a year we were doing tens of thousands of, of external wall installations a year and that that market got got pulled um, in sort of 2014-15 and a lot of those people have now moved into other parts of the industry uh, or have left the industry uh, and it takes time for those businesses to, to rebuild back up into those spaces so I think people will go back into that space if there's good money to be made and, 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 and that money is seen that it's going to stay there as a commitment, the industry will come back. And I think perhaps, I guess you guys are up in Scotland, I think the Scottish market has had better policy environment and has had better funding and hopefully is seeing the rewards of that. Certainly in England, it's been a lot more difficult. So if I'm a gas engineer at the moment, let's say I'm working for British Gas, um, how, how would it work out? in terms of being retrained who would tap on my shoulder and say listen have you thought about this have you thought about becoming a heat pump engineer or you know let's say i'm in a totally different trade let's say i'm a joiner have you thought about learning how to do you know external uh, wall cladding how is this happening today and how how does it need to happen tomorrow it's, in, it's interesting I've, I've, i'm getting i just had some solar panels fitted on on my, on my roof and a battery and uh where the where the inverter was going i want to get some insulation and put on that same wall so I've got the solar panel company doing the external wall insulation and their, their roofers have, have been upskilled into fitting insulation with, with a bit of support from the, from the manufacturer, the supplier, uh, and a bit of direction for myself. So that, and, and they've done a great job. And so people, the people in the industry are very good at learning things quickly and picking things up. The challenge is making sure that they, they continue to learn, understand, develop. Uh, I think some of, those, some of the technologies are, are easier than others. Air source heat pumps, designing air source heat pumps and the air source heat pump systems for existing homes, which could have a whole variety of different systems in the home, is, is quite a skill and quite a challenge. External wall insulation, uh, loft insulation, cavity wall insulation, and some of those other technologies are more straightforward. I guess it's not just about having people in jobs. It's not just about having installs. It's making sure that we have the right people who are skilled enough to deliver this stuff at a high quality. So I guess accreditation is, is going to be critical here. Joe, I can see you nodding. Is, is this something yeah. that you've, you've come across in your work? Absolutely. I think that in, the, in Wales, we had a large um, rat, a retrofit program called Arbed, which was run over a very short period of time with a lot of funding. And the market was flooded with people just people <laughs> and some of those people were obviously very well qualified and did good jobs and 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 towards and as the program went on more and more companies were joining the sector and the the you know the quality of the work wasn't as good as it was as it should have been really so i think there is a danger that asking for too much in too short a period of time can create issues and so the accreditation the commissioning process and all of those things are necessary. But I also think 
it's reliant on careful planning and design and if that doesn't happen you know if we are sort of told that there's a million billions of pounds to be spent by the end of next year you're going to end up with problems because you haven't got that skills sector you know the skills to fulfill the role how how important do you think local action is going to be to deliver some of this, whether it's um, specific accreditation programs that are appropriate for specific contexts or whether it's about um, local action, building local supply chains and creating, um, you know, local skills development programs? So do you think that this is going to be something that can happen like blanket across the national level? Do you think it needs to happen in devolved governments or do you think that local action could actually have a really important role to play here? I think there is a role for local action because I think it all comes down to having knowledge and good case studies can really stimulate an expansion or scaling up of of projects because people can go and see demonstration projects. They can learn from things that are happening around them. Then the supply chain develops and there can be a sort of growth out from a local scale. But I think there is a need for top-down you know, devolved government, national level and UK government level as well to ensure that those regulations are appropriate. You don't want to push people to achieve too much that isn't going to be, you know, that frightens them off from doing anything. You know, you want to kind of encourage and enable people to make that change in smaller steps than pushing them to do things that they in the end don't do anything because it's just too frightening for them. Fundamentally, I think you need the government policy and the government money to underpin it but you need local delivery interestingly although the 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 main greenhomes grant for householders has hasn't been rolled over the local authority delivery programs are really only just kicking in there's some innovation in the social housing decarbonisation fund projects again being led locally by local authorities and coordinated by the regional energy hubs in england so I, i do think that those projects will help drive some local action I think historically, look back though, some local authorities were really proactive and had the resources and geared up and delivered very well, but that left some areas with didn't do that and were left behind. But interestingly, what you are starting to see is local communities, even villages coming together to, to do ground source heat pumps that, that connects the whole village. And you are seeing some of those local groups coming together and, and driving some action. And I think that's a really, again, a really important thing. Some, if, if you're interested in engaging in this space, to, to not only act for yourself but try and encourage others and help others around you to to do more and then hopefully that snowball impact will will roll up and 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 we'll start to get more scale yeah i mean i've i've seen in the it's a huge change in the interest of local authorities over the last few years to really learn and expand their knowledge in energy the energy sector and low carbon retrofitting they really are keen to 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 develop their understanding i think one of the hindrances for them at the moment is that they they tend to only have the the traditional energy manager role in the local authority and they tend to only look at things like sap rate you know they they, they sap ratings and tracking epcs and sort of a bit of a, the old fashioned standard way of understanding their building stock and i think going forwards there's a need for some so roles in local authorities and it could be you know younger people apprentices to to have a whole holistic knowledge of the low carbon opportunities that the local authority can develop for themselves and put them into context for their local authority and sh- and even engage between different local authorities and share knowledge 
local authorities, I think, are in a really good place because they understand what they've got in their areas. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Joe, and thank you so much, Nigel. You've really uh, shone a light on some of these very complex issues for us. I think we're going to move on um, to talk about future or fiction. And I know, Nigel, that's something you've been particularly looking forward to. Yeah, no, I've been listening in. I've been uh, very excited to, uh, to play a part. If we're being honest, this is a future or fiction podcast with a little bit of local climate action thrown in. This is what everyone comes on here for. (laughs) (laughs) So for, for the uninitiated, for anyone listening who isn't familiar, Future or Fiction is a game whereby I present our guests and our hosts with a brand new exciting technology, usually themed around energy, and you have to work out if it's a genuine technological innovation, i.e. if it's the future, or if I've just completely made it up, in which case it is fiction. So, this episode's creation is called Cryptothermal. That's Cryptothermal. Mining for cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, uses huge amounts of computational power, which requires huge amounts of energy and in turn generates huge amounts of waste heat. To put this to better use, Bitcoin geeks have devised a system that recycles some of this heat to heat local buildings and homes. Through the recycled heat, they can power boilers and the like, reducing bills for their neighbours considerably. So do we think that the cryptocurrency geeks have designed local heating systems using waste heat from their big warehouses? Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? I think you've been watching too many of these superhero films, Fraser. <laughs> Crypto Thermal, I'm pretty sure I saw that in the last, last the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, yes, guys, what do we think? So I, I've, I've had some experience of something similar, not quite the way the Fraser described it. So I've seen people, who've, I think a French company, looking at doing, basically taking the servers out of a big data center and putting the server in, in, your, in, your, in your bedroom as like a radiator. So that there is a solution that sounds similar. So I'm not quite sure if this is, an energy center and piping the waste and the heat away or if this is a local server but i'm going to say i think this is this is the future yeah i agree i agree i've heard similar things from from data centers too so i'm going to go with the future as well for that one i know that one of the prospering from the energy revolution projects the one based in islington it's called green skies is looking at creating heat networks using waste heat from data centers but you didn't talk about data centers. You talked about cryptocurrency and that has thrown me because I kind of know nothing about cryptocurrency. So are we talking about a data center here or are we talking about something that is inherently distributed in the ether of the magic of the internet? I thought this was essentially just kind of, you know, somebody doesn't see the light of day much sitting in kind of a dark room somewhere with two, three really high-powered laptops and just sort of running them indefinitely rather than a massive data center. Now, I, I, you know, that might be my warped perception of this. Maybe it's a much more professional outfit. Mining for Bitcoin and widely for, for cryptocurrency. So it's not just Bitcoin. There are so many others these days that have popped up. It's a big operation. It isn't just laptops in bedroom. You are talking data center size. But you would you would have to have quite an established outfit doing this to then build some kind of heating system off that. I don't know. I'm I, I'm less I'm less sure about this one. Hang on a second. Mining. 
What do we mean by mining? Because it's not something physical we can dig out the ground. Come on, you're going to have to explain this a bit more. <laughs> uh, I was really, really hoping that question wouldn't come up. So, <laughs> so mining, mining, now please, if anyone knows more about this than me, please jump in. But my understanding of it is mining for things like cryptocurrency is where you have computers that are effectively solving equations. They're cracking these codes to unlock whatever the coins are underneath it, whatever. The coins aren't physical, right? It's not physical stuff, but it's computers that solve equations. Does anyone know any more about this than me that can put this better than I can? No. Okay. <laughs> I, th I think you've done a good enough job there, Fraser. And Thank it, you. It, 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 captures, it captures what this is about. So I'm going to lay my, my cards on the table. If we were talking about a server, if this was Apple, Google, whatever, I think this has probably already been done. But I don't think for Bitcoin mining. I don't think it. Why is that? Yet. Do you think like Bitcoin miners are just bad people? No, I, I just, I just, I just think, I just think the process is too informal and too underground for it to be established as a kind okay, of district okay. heating. System. This is this is what I was hoping for. This is exactly what I was hoping for. But I, I'm I'm fringe here. You, I've, we've Joe, Joe is firmly in in the yes. I think Nigel is Joe. Yeah, I'm sticking with future definitely. Nigel. I'm sticking with future. I've, I'm certainly I've seen it centrally and locally, but um, not sure about Bitcoin. But I still think that was the the slight Fraser trying to throw us off path. Yeah, the Fraser's like that. Becky, I think that this is something that Fraser couldn't have made up. So I'm going with <laughs> what future. Is, what is <laughs> intellectually beyond? That <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> was just mean. I'm, I'm saying I know. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's true. You're staying on the contrary. Okay, the answer is... It is the future. And not, not because I'm not capable of making it up. <laughs> but yes, that's right. Cryptothermal is the future. A Canadian startup, Heatmine, have been trialling heat recycling systems tailored for Bitcoin warehouses specifically to put some of the huge amounts of wasted energy to better use. For, for scale and for reference, Matt, Bitcoin, like emissions from mining Bitcoin around the world are the same size of the annual emissions of Argentina. Wow. Yeah, that's bonkers. The emissions are enormous. And a lot of them are concentrated in these enormous data, data warehouses. Matt, maybe you can make us a graph of that for next time. <laughs> I'm sure I can. And it also, you know what, it, it puts a whole new slant on a project we've just put in, which is about mine water geothermal, which is about mm -hmm. taking heat out of old coal mines. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a very weird analogy here for Bitcoin mining. So I think all that remains is to, is to say thank you again to Nigel and to Joe and to Fraser for a fabulous future or fiction as always. Remember to check us out on social media. Uh, tweet us at energyrev underscore UK. Use our hashtag local zero. Join the conversation. Ask us any questions you want us to get to in future episodes and we'll do our best. But for now, bye. Very good. Bye bye. Bye. Bye 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 bye. Thank you all. I know. I hate when that happens. N Nigel, Chris, Chris Stark did the same thing. I suggested something. He goes, oh, well, I know about this already. So <laughs> future. And I was like, fuck, fuck <laughs> this. Yeah. This, is the, this is the problem about getting experts yeah. on. You've got to put more effort in, Fraser. <laughs> Definitely more effort. Well, you did, you, did the, um, you did the one from the Black Panther film. Although, let's be honest, that's where the inspiration came from and caught me out. I yeah. caught you out, yeah. It's not not that you're keeping a tally or anything, Fraser. <laughs> no. 
I haven't worked on research in about six months. <laughs> Don't tell me that. I'm your advisor. <laughs> Produced by Bespoken Media.